Hello friends, welcome or welcome back. You're listening to Strictly Crime with me, Alex. It's time for a new episode. As always, I hope you guys are doing great. I have been really busy the past couple weeks, but I'm super excited for this case because it really needs to be talked about. I have never heard of it until I actually got this book from the library. I like to go to the library about once a month and check out a couple books in the true crime section and try to see some cases that I haven't heard about or get some insight into really big cases and stuff like that. So I found out this case through the book that I was reading. It is called Real Justice. Oh, let me, let me see, let me see. Let me read you the title. It is called Real Justice, 14 and Sentenced to Death the story of Stephen Truscott. And there's a couple other books that um, talk about this case because it was really big back in the day when it happened, which was 1959, a long time ago. And it's got brought back up in a little more recent times, um, like the early... 2000s and stuff like that when he was eventually exonerated. But I really wanted to talk about this case because unfortunately it has two victims. Lynn Harper, who lost her life and her true killer, has never been found and may never be found. And Stephen Truscott, who had to be in jail for 10 years until he was paroled, and then he still had the conviction of murder on his back for many, many years. And both of these victims need to be talked about. Obviously, it is extremely upsetting that Lynn Harper does not have justice, and she died at 12 years old. And so I really wanted to talk about this case, and we are going to be talking about part two and his conviction, when he went to court, the whole trial, his life after he got out and was paroled, and all of that. So if you want to hear about Stephen Truscott and his journey through the justice system, keep listening. So like I mentioned in part one, Stephen was taken to jail, really without his parents' knowledge, You know, he signed a statement and was really cooperative with police. They kept him in jail overnight. And then in the morning, his family found out he's arrested for a murder. And that was probably really scary. But they eventually said, okay, this is going to trial. The trial lasted about two weeks, and it started on September 16th, 1959. And his trial began in the then Supreme Court of Ontario in Godridge before Mr. Justice Ferguson and also a jury. He was represented by a man named Frank Donnelly. 
and Glenn Hayes appeared for The Crown, which is, in to my knowledge, like the state. It's like the state versus Stephen, pretty much. Um, and they call it The Crown, at least back then they did. And all the evidence that presented in courts against him was circumstantial. They had no physical evidence. Obviously, DNA um, wasn't a thing yet, so they didn't introduce that or anything, but they only had circumstantial evidence, which we will get into all of that, which means it's like there's no proof. It's just story. It's just their word against Stephen's word, and it's really frustrating reading this and when I read the whole book because they didn't even give him the time of day to speak his innocence. And he was 14 years old. I cannot imagine being 14 in a court being accused for something like that. I don't know how I would have acted. I was, so, I would have been so young. And, you know, it's just so frustrating how they did this whole trial. So anyways, it was all circumstantial and it pretty much was centered on where Lynn Harper's death, like what time in the time frame, and this is what implicated Stephen. It was this very small, narrow window of time that he was supposed to murder and sexually assault a girl that he went to school with, that he was somewhat friends with, acquaintances with. He was supposed to murder or sexually assault her, um, pretty much strangle her, get no blood on him, be quiet because there was people walking down the road at this time you know, by where the woods were. It just, it doesn't make sense. So, it's the small window of time that they center this whole case on. And this narrow time period was the autopsy doctor's testimony. And, you know, like I said, Lynn did have an autopsy. And the man who did that gave a small window of time when he thought that she would have been killed. Later, he does dispute that um, and changes his story years and years later. But during this time, it's the small window of time where he says she had to have been killed. And it was because her body was decomposing and there was partially digested food in her stomach indicating that she had died near the time uh, that she had ate, not too long after that. And she would have been with Stephen not too long after she ate as well. So that's why they are really looking at Stephen here. So they... They start the trial, and there had been a couple of witnesses, quote-unquote witnesses, that had taken the stand. Um, I think about five or more children that were between the ages of, like, 12 to 14 that were on the stand giving testimonies, which 
I don't really hear, I don't really feel here nor there about that. Um, if they were mature enough to speak the truth, then they should be allowed on the stand. But however, that's really not what happened, unfortunately. Now, the Crown believed that Stephen and Lynn got as far as the tractor trail in Lawson's Bush, which was a farm in their little town. And again, I will post um, pictures on Strictly Crime. You can go look and you can see where this all had taken place. The tractor trail, Lawson's Bush and his farm, the bridge where they would go swimming. Like you could see the whole little area. So I really recommend looking at that and you can see kind of where they're talking about that these things happened. Well, the Crown believed that they got to the tractor trail and then they said they believed that Stephen took her into the woods, sexually assaulted her, and strangled her with her shirt, and then tried to cover her body with tree branches. According to their story, he then got back on his bicycle, returned to the school shortly before 8 p.m., and acted like nothing happened. And including the time it takes to, you know, bike to and from the woods, he had to do all of this within 45 minutes or less, and he did it without breaking a sweat, without making a peep. You think he's going to be able to commit such a brutal crime so quietly and accurate and just have all of these little details set and ready to go? Like, no. If a young person like this is going to you know, commit a crime. In my opinion, they're going to do a little bit of sloppy work. He's never been a rebellious teen. He is very, you know, cut straight and like a straight edge a little bit and follow the rules and all of that. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Dr. Pennistone, the pathologist, stated and told the court that Lynn died around 7 p.m. to 7.45 p.m. This was the exact time which Stephen said he was with her, and to the jury, that must have been pretty compelling. Um, But that seems, I don't know what the specific word is, but that seems like he said that to fit the narrative that's of Stephen's story, unfortunately. And like I said, later, many, many years later, he will quietly take back his statement, this Dr. Pennistone. So to the jury, they're saying, you were with her around this time and this is the time she died. I mean, they're gonna take that into consideration. Later in the trial, the defense lawyer and an expert who said this time accuracy was almost impossible. Dr. Uh, Berkeley Brown, who taught at the University of Western Ontario Medical School, testified that the stomach normally empties between three and a half to four hours after a meal. And even that can be delayed if the meal was not well chewed. There's many different factors. So just because she had this food in her system doesn't mean 
that she died at exactly the time that Dr. Penistone is saying. The jury at the time kind of had to figure out which person they were going to believe, which one of these experts, because they're saying two different stories at this point. There were, like I said, several people that went on the stand and gave their testimony of what happened, what they saw, and all of these were children. So one of the main people that kind of made Stephen look pretty bad was Jocelyn Godette. And she was one of the first to testify. And she told her story. She said that Stephen asked her to go look for some calves in the woods. And this was only 90 meters from where Lynn's body was later found. She said that Stephen told her not to tell anyone. She said that she had went to meet up with Stephen, but he wasn't at Bob Lawson's farm, and she came back several times, she said, to see if he was there, but no luck. She said this was about 7 o'clock, but Stephen and Lynn did not meet up until about 7.30. And she also said, you know, caught glimpse of a boy named Arnold George, and he went by Butch. He gave a statement, actually, three different statements, and they were not the same. And he stated when he was on the stand that he had met with Jocelyn that night because he was biking to the swimming hole and saw her at the tractor trail. He said this was about 7.20 when he saw her, but according to her, it was around 7, maybe a little bit before 7. So their times are off about 30 minutes, which isn't a big deal. But in a murder case where apparently Stephen only has 45 minutes to commit this murder, 30 minutes is a lot of time. He said he only really heard her, caught like a small glimpse of her because he was biking to the swimming hole. He said he stayed there until about 8.30 and then went home. He stated he had not seen Lynn Harper that night. And this is what Stephen says later is one of the lies that Butch said. He said that after he went home, he decided to go to Stephen's house at 8.45 p.m. They talked and Butch said that he asked Stephen where he had been that night. And Stephen said he was with Lynn and that he gave her a ride to the highway. He also stated that Stephen said they were on the side of the bush looking for a cow and a calf. At this point, Stephen was extremely upset because he knew Butch was lying. And this story would, both of their stories would make Stephen look guilty because the times are not adding up. Apparently, he said he was with Lynn looking for cows in the area where Lynn's body was found. And like I said, Butch gave three different statements. And the third statement was the one that he read and told at trial. The other two were pretty different. And unfortunately, this would not look good for Stephen. Stephen was really, really firm in his account of what happened that night. And here you have a young boy named Butch who had three different statements. What makes you think that he's telling the truth? Stephen said, this is what happened. Every single time he talked to the police, he told them the exact same story. And 
Now, Butch gave several different statements to police. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me that you would think he is being truthful when he doesn't even have his story straight. Seriously. Um, And unfortunately, like I said, that would make Stephen look guilty that he didn't bring up these people or that he talked to these people or saw them because he didn't. Um, but to the jury and everything like that, it's not going to look good. Also, because of the time and age that this had taken place, you know, Stephen didn't go and stick up for himself in court. He was very quiet. Again, he was 14. So, I mean, I don't know what you would expect a 14-year-old to act like in court, but he was very quiet, um, really, like, shocked, honestly. And so, he didn't really show much emotion. He he didn't really look at the jury a lot. He kind of looked down, very sad. Um, and so, this also would make the jury feel some type of way. But it's like, what do you expect him to act like? He is probably extremely scared. He wants to make sure that he doesn't act out because he knows that he's innocent. And so, he doesn't want to do something wrong. That's probably what he's thought this whole time. There were several other people and young children who gave statements as well, and there were three people that confirmed Stephen's story, and they had the same story. They gave the same statements. They didn't change their story like these other two, like Jocelyn and Butch. They corroborated Stephen's story. And they said Dougie Oates was one of the children. He was another child from the area. He was asked what he did that night that Lynn disappeared. And he told them that he and a few others hunted for turtles at the bridge. He saw Lynn and Stephen on his bike riding past. He wasn't sure what time because obviously this was a long time ago. And so he might not have had a watch on. They didn't have phones, obviously. So he wasn't sure exactly what time, but he said he knew it could not have been as early as six because when he left his home and when he got back and stuff like that, he was able to piece it together. It was not earlier than six or at six o'clock. He said, like, hi, and um, he said that Lynn smiled at him, but Steve must not have heard, and they were just riding past on the bridge. He then saw them ride towards the number eight highway, which is what Stephen said. He said he didn't see them again that night. Dougie said that he was home about 745, and his statement was very different from the other two with the timing and all of that, and they actually tried to kind of talk with him like are you sure it wasn't before seven are you are you sure it wasn't this time and he stood his ground he was firm they argued back with him that it had to have been before seven he said no maybe after seven but not before seven because of when he left his house and when he got home and this could change things for Stephen and so that's why the crown was arguing back because his story matched with Stevens, but it didn't match the other two that made Steven look bad, right? So three people confirmed his story. The Crown, for some reason, did not believe these witnesses that were confirming Stephen's story. 
I guess they just thought these children would lie on the stand, which doesn't make any sense. And the trial, like I said, had taken about two weeks. There was many different stories from different people and only circumstantial evidence. Really, the only bad thing was Jocelyn Gadette's story and Butch's story as well. And that's just story. So they have no evidence, but they still charged Stephen Truscott. And he was sentenced to death by hanging, which would be scheduled in December of that year. And that's just mind-blowing to me. Very, very frustrating. I could not imagine how scared he was in that moment, having to hear those words that you're going to die. Um, I just, I cannot imagine it, especially because he is innocent, in my opinion. And, you know, eventually he was acquitted. So I believe he's innocent. There's been no evidence to confirm that he's ever hurt anyone in his life, let alone murdered and raped a young girl that he was acquaintances with. Very far-fetched to me, but he did get sentenced to death. And I just don't understand how a quiet, polite boy could do such a horrific crime in broad daylight. I know that there is bad people out in the world. I totally understand that. And anything could happen and we've seen it all. Especially if you listen to true crime on the regular, you know that there's some crazy kids out there that have done really horrific things, but he's had no history of violence at all. He was an amazing kid. He loved biking and doing normal activities and just one day he decides that he's going to murder one of his classmates, you would think that there would be something that would sort of trigger a behavior like this. He was supposed to do this in broad daylight in the woods right next to a road with many passerbyers and be completely quiet while doing it and make Lynn be completely quiet as well. He supposedly did this all without breaking a sweat or getting any blood on him from the brutal injuries that Lynn had received. And I just feel so bad for Lynn and her family as well because in some ways they probably wanted to believe that Stephen did this because it's like you want to know rather than be just in the dark with everything. But they probably were questioning as well, like, was it him? Is, did he do these terrible things to her? They just wanted justice for her as well, and she kind of gets lost in this story, unfortunately, because her killer has never been found, and she was so young and didn't deserve any of the things that happened to her, and unfortunately, the justice system failed her and Stephen, and the cops were not focused on believing Stephen because if he said he saw Lynn get into a car and he, she really did, they really, really, really messed up a lot in this case from the very beginning. Now, Stephen and his lawyer had filed an appeal but the family hired a new lawyer and 
They were kind of just waiting on this appeal. On January 21st, 1960, his appeal was put forth by John O'Driscoll, and it was dismissed. Immediately afterwards, the government of Canada and the governor commuted his sentence to life imprisonment. So, they weren't going to do the death penalty, which I don't know why they gave it to him in the first place, and they just immediately afterwards, uh, after he put his appeal in, they just gave him life in prison, which, like, I don't know how any of you feel about the death sentence. You know, it's not my decision to choose when someone dies, but there are some very vile people in the world that do so much damage, and, um, you know, the court believes they deserve to die. Even if Stephen did murder her, I don't know that I would choose for him to get the death sentence. Um, And I think that they were probably kind of realizing, like, that's a really, really, really harsh sentence. And they just brought it down to life in prison. An application for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada was denied in February. And uh, he just wanted to appeal this case because he's like, I am innocent. And unfortunately, it just kept getting denied. Because of his age, he was going to be sent to a training school for boys. Um, And it was in Guelph until he turned 18. And at the school, it was a little more lax. um, But I say that kind of loosely because obviously he's still refined um and when he he, when he was in this like training school he was able to visit with his family and he spent several years in the machine shop helping out Stephen Truscott spent 10 years in prison and he was paroled He did eventually, after going to the training school for boys when he turned 18, he was put into a normal penitentiary, and then eventually, in 1969, he was able to be released on parole, and he lived in Kingston with his parole officer, then in Vancouver for a brief period, and then settled in Guelph under an assumed name. He married and actually raised three children, and this was extremely hard for him because he fought in prison and when he was young to fight for an appeal, but he was out on parole, so he still has that murder charge on his back, and he was afraid, so he went by a different name, and of course, it must have been frightening. It's like, how do I get a job? How do I do anything? Because for a lot of people with felonies and things, it is extremely hard to get a job. Um, And if you do, sometimes you can't make much money. But he did get married and have three children. And he kind of tried to disappear and live a normal life because he just went through probably the worst years of his entire life at this point. So, he just wanted to be a nobody now and disappear and just live somewhat of a peaceful existence. For almost 30 years, he lived under the media radar in Guelph, Ontario, 
and his identity was known only to some members of the community and to his co-workers at a company where he was employed as a millwright to the outside world he was only known by his assumed name so he just didn't want anybody to know about this because i'm sure he had a lot of fear that if he met someone and they they knew about this they were going to see him differently like you're a murderer even though he spoke of his uh, you know innocence for years and decades literally now he maintained this low profile until about 2000 and he did an interview on cbc television's um, investigative news program where they kind of revisited his case and they a lot of things led to them suggesting that he was innocent and had been ignored in the original trial in 2001 james locker led the association in defense of the wrongly convicted to file an appeal to have his case reopened and in 2002 um, a judge at the time decided to review the case in april of 2006 the body of lynn harper was exhumed by the order of the attorney general of ontario and this was an order to test for dna evidence because they're finally looking back into her case and you know the case of stephen truscott as well um because he was able to be paroled and he knew he was innocent and so they're finally doing this there was hope that this would bring some sort of closure to the case but unfortunately no usable dna was recovered from the remains it had been a long time and when she was murdered they didn't know about dna so they didn't try to preserve any you know what i mean um now there was some flies and maggots and insect activity on her body and this kind of raised a reasonable doubt whether she died before 8 p.m and could suggest that she died as late as the next day before she was found although the court said that there was no realistic possibility that this could have assisted in solving the murder in 1959 but samples of insects and the maggots were collected from the body and the science has since evolved by knowing when insects deposit their eggs or larvae on a corpse experts can estimate the time of death and the evidence did not rule out that lynn died at the time stated by the crown so they didn't really know here or there really now, Stephen Truscott's conviction was brought to the Court of Appeal for Ontario in June of 2006, and this was a five-judge panel headed by Ontario Chief Justice Roy McMurdy and included Justice Michael Moldover, and they heard three weeks of testimony and fresh evidence. And in January of 2007, that court of appeal began hearing arguments from Truscott's defense in the appeal of his conviction. Arguments were heard by the court over a period of 10 days and concluded in early February, which 
is really good for Steven because he's finally able to say his side. When he was a young boy, like I mentioned, he was probably scared. He just wanted to sit there quietly because he didn't know what was going on. I mean, when he did speak and told them, this is what I saw, this is what happened, they turned it around on him and convicted him of murder. So of course he's not gonna wanna speak. But now as an adult, he has a lot more courage and he's ready to finally be free of this. Now, during this review, Justice Moldaver asked retired OPP officer Harry or Hank Sayu, who assisted Inspector Harold Graham, who was like the main guy over the case. And he asked him why the police never considered a sexual psychopath might be responsible for her rape and murder before they narrowed their focus on a 14-year-old boy, which is a great question. I want to know the same thing. I don't know how you would expect a young, well-behaved boy to do something like that. It would be different if he was a very troubled boy, was getting in trouble, doing bad things. He was maybe harassing her before he did something like this, but he did none of those things. He was a very well-respected young boy. There would be no reason why he would commit a crime like this. And the justice said, quote, did the thought ever cross your mind that for someone to strangle her, then sexually assault her, you might want to be looking for someone who is more of a pervert, more of a sexual psychopath. And the response that he got from Harry Sayo was, I don't recall that. Which, I mean, that great answer, right? Great answer. No, you should have been thinking of that. And you should apologize, definitely, because you took a lot of years from Stephen. Um, and they really should have listened to Stephen in the first place and look for that gray Chevy, which they never did. In August of 2007, the Court of Appeal acquitted Stephen Truscott of the charges. And I am really happy for him that he was able to be acquitted but I'm also still sad because Lynn Harper was murdered and she deserves justice. Her body was exhumed and nothing came from that. And that's already hard enough. You know, her family has to kind of have a second burial, which can be extremely emotional and triggering. So I cannot imagine that. But I am glad that Stephen, who did not commit this crime is now less connected to it and he's able to have more of a normal life. You know, he did still have murder on his record. So he went to when he went to go get a job, that's going to be on there. And now he is free from that, which is really amazing. Attorney General of Ontario Michael Bryant apologized to Stephen on behalf of the government stating that they were truly sorry for the miscarriage of justice, which if I was in this situation, sorry isn't going to cut it. I spent 10 years in jail and the rest of my life having this baggage over my shoulder, still being the person convicted of a crime I didn't commit, that probably should require a little bit of compensation, right? Which we will get into in just a minute. Now, a lot of people, including 
Lynn Harper's family have never thought that Stephen was innocent. In July of 2008, Lynn Harper's brother described Truscott's compensation package that he got as a real travesty and indicated he would not inform their father for fear the news would upset him. Which, I mean, I... What can I say? You know, um, his sister died. Lynn Harper was murdered. And if it gives them peace of mind that they believe Stephen did that, I don't, I don't know that I would want to take that away from them. They should know who did it. But if they, they 100% proved Stephen didn't do this. He was let out of prison. Um, and so he shouldn't have to, you know, hold that. Um, they should believe the justice system and, um, but I understand their pain in another way. You know, it's kind of like, I don't really know what to say to that, unfortunately. In media interviews, Stephen recalled waking up every morning of his initial period behind bars, wondering if he would be executed before the day was done. He also said that he had been drugged with LSD and truth serum during his incarceration by authorities and hoped that this would induce him to confess which is fucking disgusting. Unfortunately, times were, like we've said many times, different back then. Um, And that's just so, so unfortunate. He said, quote, I'm not bitter. You can't live day after day being bitter. I've moved on with my life. My wife and I raised a family. I was always taught to look at things positively, unquote, which is really good. Um, You know, if I keep thinking, if I was in this situation, what would I do? And I don't really know what I would do, but I know that I don't know if I could be that positive. So that's really good that he is able to do that. Meanwhile, all of this, Lynn Harper's family and her father maintained that he and other close family members were skeptical of his innocence, like I said, um, which I'm sure Stephen also feels bad about because if he truly is innocent, which I believe, then he's like, I just want you guys to know I am innocent and I don't know what to do. You know, I was acquitted and he just wants them to know the truth. And it's just really unfortunate. Stephen also said, quote, although we are grateful for the freedom and stability this award will provide, we are also painfully aware that no amount of money could ever truly compensate him for the terror of being sentenced to hang at the age of 14. The loss of his youth or the stigma of living for almost 50 years as a convicted murderer. And they, the Ontario government, would pay him $6.5 million for suffering a, quote, miscarriage of justice. He lived with 48, around 50 years of being wrongly convicted of rape and murder that he did not commit. The following year, in 2007 or 8, I believe it was, that is when they awarded him that compensation. And him and his family um, moved into an expansive home on the outskirts of Guelph. 
His wife and him looked forward to living a more comfortable life with their three children and four grandchildren. Unfortunately, not too long after he was awarded all of this, there came some devastating news. Trescott, who says he never spent a day in his life in the hospital, had not visited his own family doctor in two years, finally booked a visit, a routine checkup, and a blood test found that there were dangerously high levels of PSA. And there was a biopsy done that confirmed that he had prostate cancer. His wife said, quote, I can remember thinking, why does this have to happen to him? I was just sick, absolutely completely sick from worry. You know, she was so upset about him being wrongfully convicted. And obviously these two things are not the same. But now on top of all of that, finally getting some peace of mind, just another thing, another struggle comes their way. And he said that, you know, he learned to control a lot of his emotions in prison. And the stress that he received really took a toll on him, unfortunately. He went through surgery and radiation, and he was a really strong boy and man physically. And then after all of these struggles with his cancer, he unfortunately put on weight, walked slower, and lacks the energy that he used to have. And he admitted that he tired out faster. There was a big personality change because he was usually easygoing and now with all of these medicines and things that he was going through, he was more irritable and distant and it was really a hard time for them. Now, they did step out of the public a lot since his acquittal and the family launched a Truscott Initiative Injustice Studies at the University of Guelph, funding two scholarships for students in the field and working toward setting up a chair devoted to justice and social issues. They still get letters and emails regularly from supporters and school children working on projects about this legal case because it has been brought up a lot. I had never heard of it until I found this book on it at the library, but it's pretty big because he was convicted for so long, um, and there's a lot of cases like this that nobody ever hears about, especially with minorities and African Americans, and unfortunately, even though they're wrongfully convicted, a lot of times they don't get acquitted. So this is a big case, even though Stephen is white. It's good to talk about that there can be justice brought to people who are truly innocent. And for now, Stephen Truscott just wants to think about living his simple life. He doesn't want to think about death. He doesn't want to think about his cancer and um, all of those things. He and his wife dream of spending more time with their grandchildren and taking road trips to explore Canada.
He said, quote, I was given two chances, escaping a hanging death after a criminal conviction, and for now at least, a lingering death from cancer. He said, also, my cat has nine lives, so I have seven more to catch up. And that that just shows you that he's really just fighting to live um, a more peaceful life because he went through so much. But what really gets lost in some of this is Lynn Harper. Her case has still not been solved. Stephen Trescott was acquitted of her rape and murder. And unfortunately, I don't know that it will be ever be solved, unfortunately. Um, I really hope it does. Because that little girl suffered a really brutal death that no one should ever have to go through, especially at that young of an age. It's disgusting. Um, I just really wish that police back then would have listened to Stephen and followed that lead of that gray Chevy, tried to track, track it down somehow, and at least talk to the person, you know, at least interview them. But unfortunately, it went a total different way. And I'm just hoping one day that this can truly be solved and her and her family can just be at peace. It's been so many years fighting this fight and they thought Stephen was convicted and he was the person, but unfortunately he's not, for them at least. Um, it's a good thing that Stephen was able to, pro- you know, get out of prison and show that he is innocent, but for Lynn's family, they thought that he did it and now they don't know what to think which is also a battle in itself. Thank you guys for listening to this episode today and the tragic death of Lynn Harper and the wrongful conviction of Stephen Truscott. As always, I will post pictures of Lynn and Stephen and the whole little route that um, they think that Stephen took when he killed her and, you know, all this different evidence I will put that all in a Instagram post on my Instagram, Strictly Crime, if you guys want to go look at that. If you want to support this podcast, you can click the link below and donate, but that is just a suggestion. You can also rate and review my podcast and share with your friends. Next week, I am planning on doing a pretty cool case. It's going to be a smaller case, but I want to bring more light to it. So hopefully it can become more well-known because it is about a missing child. So I really want that to be heard. And I thank you guys so much for listening and I will talk to you next week. See ya.